Well, anyways, it is good to see you all uh, this evening, and I'm happy to see you uh, in a, on a Friday night where I'm not dressed up uh, in a suit. Not like I have anything against that, but it just made it a little strange for, for some of you, I know. So um, it is good to be here on a regular Friday with you all. We're going to be resuming our study in the book of Mark this evening. Uh, and so please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be beginning in verse 20, and we'll go all the way to verse 35. We're going to be looking at the question, who is Jesus really? Okay, so Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35. Mark tells us this, and he, that is Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother, and looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word and for how it shows us more of who Christ is. We're grateful, Lord, that we have such clarity about the person of Jesus Christ. And as we sung uh, earlier, as we know more of who Christ is, we recognize that all of our lives are yours. And so we pray, Father, that you would use this evening to... um, to strengthen our knowledge of who Christ is and to encourage us to live our lives according to that knowledge. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, questions about Jesus' identity have long been asked by the people who've heard of him. Or even in Jesus' day, there were people who debated among themselves, who is this Jesus? All right, some people said that he was John the Baptist, reincarnate. They were wondering, was he perhaps Elijah? Was he Jeremiah or any of, uh, any of the other prophets? And that was the mindset that they had, that these godly men of old would come back to minister the word of God to them. Now today, we don't necessarily wonder whether he's an Old Testament prophet. We know that he is distinct from the Old Testament prophets But we still sometimes hear people debate as to whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. Or no one's foolish enough to deny the existence of a historical Jesus. No one will deny the existence of a historical Jesus. But they do ask questions about who he is nonetheless. Was he just a good man? Uh, A good rabbi who got caught up in the frenzy around him about him possibly being the Messiah, and accidentally ended up on the cross? Was he just a delusional madman who was able to rile the people up to follow him? Our good friend C.S. Lewis puts it this way. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the stories about Jesus, we are left with three options. He is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. In our passage this evening, we will see a similar evaluation of Jesus' ministry from members of his own family and from some of the religious leaders of Israel as well. And though there were certainly people 
who would believe in Jesus in time, there remained some people who refused to believe in him. They refused to place their faith in him despite the evidence that showed that he was indeed Lord. And so as we approach our passage tonight, our goal is to answer three questions about Jesus and his ministry that reassures us that he is God. Okay, three questions that we must answer regarding Jesus and his ministry that reassures us that he is God. The first is, who is Jesus? Right? What's his identity? Who is he? Right? Who empowers Jesus' ministry? How does he do all these things that he does? And number three, who is a part of Jesus' family? Okay, so who is Jesus? Who empowers Jesus' ministry? And who is a part of Jesus' family? These are the three questions that we are seeking to answer this evening. So the first question that we're going to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verse 20 and 21. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. So following the calling of the 12 disciples, Jesus and his disciples returned back to their home base in Capernaum. And when the text says that he came home, it's not necessarily a reference to his family home. In fact, the text could even be read as he came into a home. Now, we're not told whose house it is, but it is very likely that it was the house of Peter and Andrew. It was the same house that uh, Jesus stayed in in Mark 2. Now, though this home was a private residence, it didn't mean that the crowds respected the fact that it was a private residence. Just like we've seen in Mark 2, the crowds came into the house right? because they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to they wanted to be the recipients of the miracles of Christ. And the immense gathering at the home was such that Jesus and his disciples, they couldn't even eat a meal together. That's how crowded it was. You couldn't even sit down at a table to have dinner with one another, to have lunch with one another. And that's an odd way to describe how full the house was, but it's not an exaggeration either. This is, uh, this is Mark's written account of what, what Peter saw, what Peter was telling him. And, um, you know, we're not talking about a crowded house like one of those party houses that, that you've seen on TV or, or in movies. Uh, it's, it's not like that where you can still kind of freely move around. It was so packed in that house that you couldn't even sit down at the table. That sounds uncomfortable, doesn't it? Kind of claustrophobic. Um, very invasive. It's like, hey, I didn't invite all you people into my house. What are you doing here? Right, but they were there because they wanted to see Jesus. Right, that's how excited they were to see Jesus. Right, just imagine this room filled, not, not only every chair filled, right, but the aisles filled with people sitting on the floor wanting to hear Jesus. And, 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 and that's, that's just a small picture of just how crowded it was, how uncomfortably crowded it was. But there was no stopping the crowds who wanted to see Jesus. Now, the uniqueness of these large crowds which followed Jesus wherever he went was such that eventually his family heard of it. Now, Jesus' family they are identified for us in verse 21 as his own people. And that's a little vague. Or it's kind of strange. Why wouldn't you just say his family? I don't know why Mark didn't say his family. But he said that his own people heard of it. Um, we know that it's his family because later in verse 31, uh, Mark does tell us that Jesus' mother and his brothers eventually came to the house. Right? They were outside the house and they were looking for Jesus. They, 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 uh, they tried to, to talk to him. Now, that specific word for take custody can be translated to, uh, can be translated as to seize. It's the word that often is used in the context of imprisonment. Right? They're, uh, in a sense, like, you know, seizing him to arrest him, to take custody of him so that he can't, uh, he can't do any more. Um, and in this particular case, Jesus' family wanted to take him home. They wanted to stop him from doing ministry because, as we see at, that, at the very end of that slide, 
They thought that he had lost his senses. They thought he was out of his mind. That he was crazy. Now, we do see later that Mary was with Jesus' brothers when, uh, when the family got there to, uh, to try and get to Jesus. And we know from our many years of Christmas programs that Mary knew full well who her son was. Or she knew that he was the son of God. It's kind of like that meme that you see during Christmas time where Robin is asking Batman, Mary, did you know? And, he, and Batman smacks Robin and says, of course she knew. Um, right? Kind of like that. Mary knew exactly who her son was. She did not think that he had lost his mind. But she was still concerned for him because of how many people were coming to see him. She was still concerned for him because she, too, knew of the jealousy of the Pharisees and the scribes. So she wanted to protect him. Jesus' brothers, on the other hand, are not as convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. John tells us in John 7, 5, that Jesus' brothers didn't understand Jesus, that they didn't even believe that he was the Son of God. Sure, they knew he was different. Right? I mean, who can... Who can grow up with someone who is sinless and not recognize that they're different? Right? It, would be so, it would be so annoying, wouldn't it, to grow up with Jesus, to be his younger sibling, and for him to never get in trouble? Right? He's the perfect one. He's the one who, who always gets things right. right? It would be so annoying. And yet, despite the fact that he had never sinned, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him, nor did they understand his ministry. If you look at the broader context of John 7, they're just like, well, if you're somebody, why don't you just go tell people who you are? And that wasn't, it wasn't his time yet for that. But because at this time, Jesus' brothers did not have a heart that understood who he was. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They came to the conclusion returning to Mark 3, 21, that he has lost his senses, that their brother had lost his senses. They knew he was a righteous man. But they're just kind of like, no, you can't be the son of God. You grew up in our family. You look just like us. And so when they heard him make claims to forgive people of their sins, that he and the Father are one, they were thinking to themselves, oh no, he's gone mad. He's lost his mind. But they weren't the only ones to think that. There were other people who thought that Jesus was crazy too. In John 10, 20, Jesus had previously been telling the crowds that he was the good shepherd and that he would care for all the sheep that God gives him. He tells them that he is the door and that if you are to be saved, that you will enter through him. There were some in the crowd who heard his words, who recognized that he was different than the teachers of the day, that he, that he had authority and that, that he backed it up with his, his actions. They recognized all these things, and so some of them believed. But there were some in the crowd who couldn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They got frustrated. They're like, why do you even listen to this man? He has a demon. He's insane. That was their conclusion when they saw Jesus, when they heard his teaching, when they witnessed his works. Their conclusion was, this guy has a demon and he's insane. Stop wasting your time. He's not worth following. But this, of course, is something that just couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus neither had a demon nor was he insane. He was the Son of God who came to save his people from their sins. But because he was not what they expected of the Messiah, they refused to believe in him. 
See, they wanted political deliverance. They wanted for their physical needs to be cared for. They didn't care about their sins being forgiven. They just wanted someone who would make them more comfortable, who would make life better for them. And so because of that, as Jesus calls them to a higher standard of living, a higher standard of faithfulness to God, a higher standard of of obedience, they listen to him and they're like, no way, dude. I ain't going to do that. You must be out of your mind. I ain't going to do that. This claim, though, that Jesus had a demon was not something that people just threw out there for fun. It was actually... It claimed that the scribes used to try and undermine Jesus' ministry, as we see in verse 22. Mark tells us, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The fact that these scribes came from Jerusalem is actually a pretty significant detail. This is not a throwaway detail. As you can see on the map, Capernaum was very, very far away from Jerusalem. Capernaum is at the very top right-hand part of the map. Jerusalem is kind of the bottom middle. It's pretty far away. Um, It's well north of of Jerusalem, but uh, the elevation was lower, which is why you you can say that you're going down into Capernaum. But this trip was not a small trip especially when you consider the limited transportation that they had in those days. Um, in order for these scribes to go from Jerusalem to Capernaum to accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed, they had to travel over 100 miles to do that or to make those claims. That would be like walking from our church to Monterey. Would you be willing to walk from our church to Monterey just to say something about someone? Probably not, right? Especially not now. If I'm going to say something about someone and try and destroy their reputation, I'd probably do it on my phone rather than walk all the way to Monterey. But that's how committed they were to destroy Jesus. They wanted to waste 40 hours of their time, assuming that they had a good walking pace, to go downhill from Jerusalem to Capernaum to say, this man has a demon, don't listen to him. That's how big of a threat he was. Now think of it this way too. Why did it have to be the scribes from Jerusalem that had to try and discredit Jesus? There were scribes and Pharisees all over Israel. Why couldn't the local religious leaders do this? Well, they could have. They tried. But Jesus' popularity was such that it got the attention of the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital. It got their attention. And they said, we have to deal with this. We've got to deal with this now. And so they sent their best scribes, their best lawyers to try and discredit Jesus. Now, obviously... This journey to discredit Jesus is not the most important part of verse 22. What is more important is the fact that they claim that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. And that when Jesus casts out demons, that he does so by the ruler of the demons or the, by the authority of the rulers of the demons. Now, the name Beelzebub is actually not a common name for Satan. Um, it's not one of his names. Rather, it was a mocking name that the people of Israel used to make fun of the Philistines' god, who was supposed to be the prince of all the other gods. Now, eventually, that name became associated uh, with Satan by the Jewish people as just another way to refer to Satan. And so it's not a title that's significant to Satan himself, it, it wasn't a, a name that, uh, another name that he goes by. It was something that the Jewish people eventually just kind of gave to him. Now, um, so if you hear anything 
you know, contrary to that. It's, it's, it, there's nothing special about this name. It's actually quite derogatory. Um, but the point of these Jerusalem scribes making these claims that, that, uh, that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub was to make people think that Jesus was not who he said he was. That he was not a servant of God. That he was not an agent of good, but in fact was the opposite. He was a manifestation of the devil himself. They couldn't deny, the scribes could not deny that Jesus actually healed people. Because some of the people that Jesus healed, they had been, uh, they had been uh, sick, disfigured uh, for a long time. And some of them for, the whole, for their whole lives. And so when Jesus healed them, it's not like, oh, no, you, you were just playing, right? You didn't have that injury your whole life. You just pretended like you had an injury. You're like LeBron in, in, in uh, basketball games. But no, right? These, these healings were significant because they happened to people who had a long history of being ill, of not being healthy. And so when Jesus healed them, it was like, whoa, what just happened? How did he do that? When, when Jesus performed exorcisms, the evidence was irrefutable that there were demons coming out of these people who were not right, who were demon-possessed. And so because the scribes could not deny that Jesus actually did these things, they decided, well, it's just better to explain that he is not who we think he is. He is not who he says he is. Rather, he is the devil himself. What better way to get people to quickly abandon what they were beginning to believe than to undermine that belief? to fill their minds with doubt by telling lies. Jesus, knowing the intent of the scribes, does not let the statements of these religious leaders go unchecked. He's not like, oh, well, I guess if you want to say that, then sure, you can say whatever you want. He doesn't do that. He provides them a correction. He summons them to himself, and he actually provides them a very severe warning, a judgment even, in the following verses. Verse 23 and 26. And he called them to himself. And this is when he's in a crowded house, mind you. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but he is finished. See, Jesus answers this foolishness with some logic. While Mark describes Jesus' answers to the scribes' accusations as parables, there's not a lot of parable here, right? Compared to some of Jesus' other parables, right? some of those were definitely more cryptic than what Jesus is saying here. It's definitely parable-like, but you'd have to be really obtuse not to understand what Jesus is saying. You have to be like really sleepy to not understand that Jesus is talking about these people who are making these accusations against him. It's quite clear what he is saying. Jesus is reminding the scribes and the crowd around him that it would make absolutely no sense for Satan to fight himself and his own kingdom. If Satan had all the power in the world to advance his kingdom as he saw fit, why would he need to go through the process of pretending to stop himself, to make himself out to be the savior? Would he need to do that? if he had all the power, all the authority to move history as he saw fit. Now, he doesn't, of course, right? But if he had such control over the world as the prince of the power of the air, why would he need to pretend to set himself up as his own deliverer? 
and, you know, there was no God. Right? Why would he need to do that? He wouldn't. He doesn't need to pose as a rescuer through the person of Jesus Christ. He would just continue to sink the world into darkness. If he were to oppose himself as he's trying to advance his kingdom, that would actually collapse his kingdom. That, that move makes no sense whatsoever, which is why Jesus says, if, if Satan rises up against himself, he is finished. If you want to think about it this way, civil wars do not grow a country. Right? Civil wars do not grow countries. It divides them. It breaks them. It shatters them. Our country has seen that too, hasn't it? And we still are picking up the pieces to this day. Civil wars do not unify. They divide. They break. They shatter. And so Jesus is saying, I can't be possessed by Beelzebub. I can't be casting out demons by the power of demons because that makes no sense. That would destroy the kingdom of Satan rather than grow the kingdom of Satan. And that's what Satan wants ultimately, isn't it? And so instead, Jesus uses a different illustration in Mark 3, 27, and he says this, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. In this illustration, Jesus is making it very clear that he has nothing to do with Satan. Satan in this illustration, right, in this parable, is the strong man. He is the one who has the home with all the possessions. Jesus in this illustration, is the plunderer, right? And obviously, if you wanted to rob someone who was at home and who was ready to defend himself, is totally capable of defending himself, you wouldn't just go, hi, I'm here to rob you today. I want your TV, any money you have in the house, any valuables. Do you have any, you know, uh, things lying around that, might uh, fetch some good money on, on, on the black market. Who would do that? Right? Why would you do that? Uh, I mean, if, if someone knocked on your door and asked you to, to hand over all of your possessions, would you do it? No, right? You'd be like, <laughs> you're, you're crazy. You can go. You can go. Right? You're just going to close the door on them and just walk away. Right? Even if they had a gun. He'd be like, um, okay, I'm going to go call the cops. You just stay here. Right. You wouldn't just give them everything. The fact that Jesus is the one who binds the strong man and then takes everything right, shows us that Jesus, Jesus has authority that can overcome Satan's, right? We, we tend to, to sometimes think, probably it's cartoons, I don't know what it is really, right? We tend to think that Satan has, is all-powerful, that he cannot be stopped, that he is a dangerous force in this world, and, and that everything has to go his way. We tend to think that, and yet what we see here is that Satan is not all-powerful, Satan is not all-powerful. He does not have all authority in this world to do whatever he wants, to do whatever he pleases. Jesus is able to subdue him and defeat him. Satan, in fact, doesn't even have any power and authority unto himself. Think about the most prominent example of Satan Trying, uh, com coming in and, and trying to, to uh, affect a human life in Job. When you think about Job, right, some of us, because we've heard the story before, we, we tend to think, oh, Satan, on his own accord, went and decided to persecute Job. Read the text again. Satan had to ask for permission. Satan had to ask for permission. He couldn't just strike Job 
Right? We, we tend to think of, of, of Satan as an agent of chaos. He goes around striking people wherever he wants. That's not what he does. That's not what he's able to do. He has to ask permission. And God is the one who granted it for Job. Now, before we get too far into the rabbit hole of why would God allow such a thing, it's because God was sovereignly trying to make a point. God was the one who initiated the showdown. Satan is powerless to do anything on his own. In Job 2, God is the one who, who speaks first. He says to Satan, where do you come from? And then, in verse 3, God issues the challenge. God is the one who throws down the gauntlet. And he, he looks at Satan and he says, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Actually, wait, sorry. Job 1. Job 2 is the second test. Um, Job 1, 8. And after God says, look at my servant Job. Look at how upright he is. Um, look at how he fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answers back and says, yeah, but why wouldn't he fear you? Right? You've blessed him beyond measure. You've, you've taken care of him. And God says, all right, so be it. So be it. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not send forth your hand toward him. What's the whole point of this? The whole point of this is to remind you all that Satan on his own does not have the ability to operate independently of God. Or God is the one who grants Satan the permission to bring trials into the lives of God's people. And God does that for our good, for our benefit. Again, we're probably getting too deep into the rabbit hole at this point when it comes to you know, why does God allow for these things to happen. Um, but I want to just make it really clear for us all, especially in these uncertain times when we're so quick to attribute all the evil in the world that we see to Satan, that he doesn't have as much power as we think he does. He's not omnipresent. And when you feel temptation, you can't say, oh, Satan must be really tempting me right now. Right, who are you that Satan would decide, oh, I think I need to specifically target this one person in San Francisco to tempt them to sin by lying on their tax forms? Who are you that Satan would pay attention to you? You're nobody. I'm nobody. There are bigger people in play. So Satan has no real power. I just want, I just want us to know that. Right? And sometimes we, th we think, especially when we look at the headlines, that he has a lot of power, don't we? Right? As our country continues to embrace and endorse belief systems that are anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-faith, it can be really easy to think that no one can stand up against Satan. But it is in those times that we must remember that Jesus has that power. Right? Those exorcisms that Jesus performs demonstrate on a small scale his great authority. That he can cast out those who are Satan's servants. It, it demonstrates that Jesus can and has no problem with attacking Satan and his kingdom. It demonstrates on a small scale that Jesus will win in the end. That he will establish his own kingdom instead. Or his kingdom of righteousness rather than a kingdom of evil. And so when we ask the question, who is Jesus? We can see that there can be no ultimate confusion about who he is. He is not a lunatic, nor is he a liar. He has demonstrated that he has the power to subdue, to conquer sickness, nature, and the supernatural. 
So there is no other conclusion that we can arrive to except that Jesus is God, just as he said. And this is backed up not just by Jesus' response to the accusation that he was possessed by Satan, but also by what he says next. And uh, the next question we'll answer is, who empowers Jesus' ministry? Who empowers Jesus' ministry? Verse 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Right? So if you remember that, that second half of the, the scribe's accusation, they were saying that he is able to cast out demons because he is empowered by the demons. And so, uh, and that he's possessed by Beelzebub. And so Jesus reminds them here, I don't cast anybody out through the devil's power. My source of power is from God himself. Now, as we see this first statement, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. That is super, super significant for us to consider. That's a lot of sin, isn't it? Whatever sin we commit, whatever reckless word that we say against God and against Jesus, right? That's basically the the definition of blasphemy. Right, that, uh, that is irreverent or slanderous words about God and Jesus. That's a lot of sin. That's a lot of sin that we're talking about here. It's a lot of sin that God graciously chooses to forgive. Right, it's a lot of sin that he extends forgiveness to and... And that's something that's, that, that should cause you to worship God even more. Because when you think about that, when you think about all the things that you've done in your life, and not just the showy things, right? not just the rebellion that you had in school, but the things that have been done in private, in the privacy of your own home, in your own room, when no one else is watching, or even in the privacy of your own mind, the things that you've thought, the things that you have said about others. If you think about all those sins that you've committed, if if God were to keep track and if forgiveness was not so readily given, that's a huge record of wrong that is on our ledger. And yet, God forgives all of it. He's willing to forgive all of it, except for one thing. Except for one thing. A sin that we know as the unpardonable sin. A few Sundays ago, we talked briefly about the unpardonable sin, and in that brief summary, we just uh, said that the unpardonable sin was something that was limited to the people who were uh, who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles. Right? And as they saw Jesus' miracles, they saw that it was from God. When they looked at those miracles, because he, they hated Jesus, they said, that's not, the work of, uh, that's not the work of God. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the devil. Right? It's, that, it's that action, that rejection of God that is the unpardonable sin, which means that none of us, can commit that sin because we're not eyewitnesses of it. Now, why was this particular sin more unforgivable, or actually just unforgivable, compared to the other ones? Or why do we limit it to those who saw Jesus' work and ministry in person rather than expand it to anyone who denies the power of the Holy Spirit today? Because it says here, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So why, why can't it apply to today? Well, as you look at the context of what was happening when Jesus was speaking to the scribes, 
we see that it is happening in the context of how they were attributing everything that he was doing to demonic power. They saw what the Holy Spirit was doing. They saw how he was empowering Jesus' ministry. And they ignored the facts. They chose to call what was good evil. They chose to try and get people to not listen to Jesus, but to instead reject him also. They were saying that the work and power of God in Jesus' life and ministry was that of the devil. And in doing so, they hardened their hearts. They ignored all the facts. They dug in their heels and they rejected God. Not temporarily, but permanently. Now, how do we know that the particular rejection of God was a permanent one that was not forgivable? Well, Jesus just said in verse 28 that all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men including whatever blasphemies they might utter. All sins can be forgiven. And that means that those people who were once atheists, who said that believing in God is stupid, and that God is not real, he's the the weak man's crutch, and only foolish people would believe in God that even they have the ability to repent of their sins, to repent of their unbelief, and to believe upon God and be saved. Even an atheist who says stuff like that. And praise be to God that that's what's true because such were some of you. But if, if that's true, If people can repent and all sins shall be forgiven of them, even no matter what was said, then that must mean that this rejection that the scribes had of the Holy Spirit when they blasphemed him was not one of ignorance. It was one that had full knowledge, that had final decisions that we're not going to believe in this Jesus. The extent of forgiveness is seen uh, really well in the example of the Apostle Paul. Right? He's prime example of that. He thought that Jesus was a pretender Messiah. He and his Pharisee friends went around killing Christians for what Paul thought was at the time false doctrine. But Paul eventually came to realize after his encounter with Jesus on the road to, the, to Damascus that he was wrong. That Jesus actually was the Messiah, was the Christ. And he repented of his sin. That's pretty significant, right? None of you all went around persecuting Christians, right? None of you all went murdering people who claimed the name of Christ in the name of righteousness. None of you have done that. And yet Paul, though he had done that, was forgiven of his sin. And in fact, was one of the chief instruments that God used to bring the gospel to the entire earth to the entire world. If the forgiveness of sins can be given to someone who so violently opposed God, those who just say bad things about God, even about the Holy Spirit, can be forgiven of their sins if they repent. But Jesus, whom we know God has given the ability to occasionally know what is in the hearts of man, recognized that these men who attributed his works to the devil were not going to repent. That it was a final rejection in their heart. They would not even reconsider at all that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why their rejection or, or their, their sin is an eternal sin. It's final. And for those listening in the crowd, Jesus makes it clear that if you follow the scribes in their permanent rejection of God, there will be no forgiveness for them either because you've cut yourself off from the means of saving grace by rejecting God himself. One commentator put it this way, their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. 
For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice. He has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. These scribes purposefully chose to reject all the evidence that God was giving them that Jesus was Lord. And instead, they allowed for their hatred of him to poison their minds and their souls, refusing to have anything to do with the one true God. They rather have their power and their status than repent of their sins. And to actually consider that Jesus was God's servant. While people today are not capable of committing the unpardonable sin, We do have to be mindful of the fact that final rejection of God is something that can still happen today. Final rejection of God can can be something that still happens today. And if we know that those who finally reject God or continue to reject God and are still in their sins when they die, well, if we know that, shouldn't it lead us to have more compassion on those who are lost in their sins? Shouldn't that lead us to desire all the more, no matter how uncomfortable it can be, to share the gospel with our friends and our loved ones who we know do not know Christ? And I'm not just saying that this is a you guys thing. This is a me thing too. Okay, I know that I need to be better at having these conversations with my family who do not know Christ. I know that I need to do better to be more bold when it comes to taking advantage of gospel opportunities with people outside of church. So this is not just me telling you all what to do. This is something I'm telling myself that I have to do too. This is a serious thing that we do because we love them, because we know what is coming for them if they do not repent. We do not want for them to experience the wrath of God against their sins, so we must be determined to share with them the gospel. Now, as we've answered this question, who empowers Jesus' ministry? We've seen that Jesus' ministry was indeed empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because the power of the Holy Spirit was so evident in Jesus' life and ministry that claimed that he was empowered by the devil was an act of final rejection by the scribes. However, we can also clearly see that Jesus really is God, right? Because he's defending God's glory. And he's telling people what happens if you choose not to believe if you choose to reject the Messiah. And that brings us to the third and final question that we seek to answer regarding Jesus and his ministry that reassures us that he is God, which is, who is a part of Jesus' family? Who is a part of Jesus' family? Verse 31 to 32. Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So in case we forgot the context of this whole exchange between Jesus and the scribes, we're reminded that Jesus' family, they're, they're here. They've heard, the, heard about all the crowds that are around Jesus, and, and they want to talk to him. They want to remove him from that situation because they think that he is crazy, that he's lost his mind, and that he's in danger. And so as Jesus is interacting with the crowds around him, um, they arrive, and, uh, and, and they're waiting for him. Right? They want to see him. Now, Jesus' family waiting for him outside is not as if, like, uh, let's, say, let's say you didn't drive here. Let's say you are waiting for your parents to come pick you up tonight. It's not like, oh, my, my dad's outside waiting for me right now. Right? Remember, this, this house is packed to the brim. It's, it's not that Jesus' family didn't want to come in. They didn't want to disturb, uh, disturb Jesus as he's teaching. They couldn't come in. That's how crowded it was. So they sent word through the crowd 
hey, we're Jesus' family. We're here to, to see him. We want to see him. And normally, you would expect someone who knows that their family is outside looking for them uh, to just drop what they're doing and go outside. Right? If, if you got a text right now from your dad or from your mom saying, hey, I'm outside, come down right now, you're not going to be like, okay, give me a minute. Or you're just going to go downstairs. Because it's like, well, one, that's like odd behavior, right? Why is my mom and dad or dad here? And why do they want to see me right now? But that's not Jesus' response. Verse 33 to 35. In answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' response to the news that his family is looking for him is not one that was meant to be disrespectful to his family, but was meant to instruct the crowds what it actually means to follow after him. You can't just be a casual follower of Jesus. You can't just hang around him because you like listening to his teaching. His voice uh, is just very soothing. He's got a way about him that you just like the way he talks. So you just want to hear more about Jesus. It's not that. Right? Following Jesus doesn't mean that you just listen to his words and you know apply it every now and then when you feel like it. And uh, it's just assume that, oh, because I go to church, because I give money to the church, and because I do things that Christians do, that's uh, the indication that I'm right with God. Their faith has to be evidence, not just in any kind of association that you might have with God. It has to be evidence through your life. It has to be seen in the way that you live your life. It has to be seen in your desire to do the will of God. Your faith has to be evident in your desire to do the will of God. Brothers and sisters, is that your desire in your lives? To do the will of God in your life. And not just to pursue the things that you want to pursue. Okay, I know that sometimes when we think about doing the will of God, we're asking God, God, do you want me to go to grad school? God, do you want me to take this job here? God, do you want me to get married or not? Do you want me to buy this house or not? Right? That's oftentimes what we think of in terms of God's will. That is not what Jesus is talking about here when he says those who uh, are his family are those who do the will of God. When he's talking about those who do the will of God, he is talking about those who know God's word and desire not just to read it and treasure it away and say, I believe this book. Those who want to do the will of God are those who study this word, who meditate upon it, and who try to live it out, who try to allow for the book to influence their lives, who are not so busy trying to make this book relevant to their lives. Rather, they're seeking to be relevant to this book. That's a difference, isn't it? That's the difference when it comes to doing the will of God. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. That those who do the will of God, or those who are going to be his family, are the ones who seek to obey his commandments. And this redefinition of what it means to be a part of Jesus' family is not meant to communicate that our biological families are not our families. I know that some of you have probably heard the most recent um, rise, of, uh, rise and fall of, of Mars Hill, and, and you've heard the warnings of if someone talks to you about being a part of a family, run away. Because they're just trying to seek to manipulate you and, 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 um, and to do harm to you. I think that's a very unfair thing that they've said. I know that it's, it happens, especially within communities of faith, where we try and redefine things in terms of family. And, and uh, sometimes you know, we're, a little strong, we're a little strong in how we, how we do things. But when Jesus talks about family. Who are his family? He's trying to show the bonds that we have, these closer bonds that we have because of him, or because of our unity in him, 
Not that our biological families mean nothing. God's word is pretty clear that God gives us our biological families as a way to learn what it means to love him, what it means to obey him, what it means to submit to him. When we learn how to honor our father and mother, that's a small picture of what it means to learn or what it means to honor God in our lives. That's why God gives us our families. Right? So that's a small aside, but I just wanted to put that out there. So this redefinition of, of what it means to be a part of the family, it's also not meant to define family roles within this church. That I'm the spiritual father, and this person is the spiritual mother, and this person is the spiritual brother. Right? It's not that. It's not that. It's a reminder that those who truly wish to consider themselves a part of God's family are those who are committed to putting their faith into practice. You have to be committed to putting your faith into practice. And the reason why I say that is because isn't it easy to say that you want to live out your faith but not do it? Right? It's super easy to do that. It's like our New Year's resolutions. Right? This year, I plan to read my Bible. How many of you stopped in Genesis 15? Or if, you're, if I'm a little more generous, how many of you stopped in Leviticus? We have to be committed to putting our faith into practice. Now, I'm not saying that only committed Christians read the book. I'm not saying that. Okay, but as we're reminded in James 2, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as true faith in God that is not also accompanied by works. There is no such thing as true faith in God that is not also accompanied by works. And that is not me advocating for a works-based salvation. I am not saying to you that you will be more holy or that you will be saved if you read your Bibles and if you pray and if you show up to every meeting that we have or you show up every time that the doors of this building are open. Okay, I'm not saying that. But what James is bringing out is not in competition with what Paul is saying. It's a reminder that actions are louder than words. You can say that you believe in Jesus. You can say that you love Jesus. But if your life does not indicate that you love Jesus, then you might not actually love Jesus like you say. And that's not something that the apostles came up with on their own. This is something that Jesus himself taught his disciples. In John 8, 31, Jesus says this. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. In John 14, 15, Jesus also says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, as you look at these passages, as you put all the pieces together, Jesus makes a connection between loving him, being his disciples, and being a part of his family. The bonds that we have in him, the bonds that we have as a church is not just because we all have some sort of shared, uh, uh, some pool of shared beliefs. We do. <laughs> we do. But it's not just because of that. Our bonds are much deeper because we've been unified with the Son of God. And if we have true union with him in salvation, and we're also empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey his commandments. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8.14, For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In other words, if you all have the Holy Spirit, and you're being empowered by the Holy Spirit to love God, as imperfect as it may be, then you can have every confidence that you are a child of God. If you are being led by the Spirit, if you are growing because, through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are one of God's children. Jesus' description of those who do God's will as a part of his family, not only proves our spiritual union with him, but it reminds us that as he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's not doing this for himself. He's doing this for God. He's doing this to grow God's family. 
He's building the kingdom for God the Father. His mission was always to do the will of God the Father, which is why anyone who desires to do the will of God in their lives is seen as his family. Now, as we answer the question of who is a part of Jesus' family, we are reminded that Jesus' lordship is, is solidified by his sole devotion to obey God the Father. And as he seeks to obey God the Father, he encourages those who believe in him to do the same. Right? How can he not? Right? If his desire is for all of us to be one with the Father and to do God's will, right? for us to be sanctified in the truth, and God's word is the truth, then how can he not want for us to live out what we know, what we believe? So Jesus is not just some random man with visions of grandeur, trying to build a following after himself. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He has demonstrated that he really is the son of God because he cares about what God cares about, or because he's lived this perfect life, because he has the authority over all, all of life. He's proved that he is really the son of God who was sent to serve and save mankind from their sins. So this evening, we answered three questions regarding Jesus and his ministry that reassure us that he is God. His life and his ministry proved that he was sent from God to proclaim the good news of the, of the kingdom of God to the lost, right? That he really is God. He's not some crazy person, but he is God. And since we have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's not an imposter, that he's not a pretender, then we know that our belief in him is not in vain. And if our belief in him is not in vain, if what he says is true, then you can, we can grow and change. That we don't have to stay in our sins. That we don't have to remain the people that we are today. Or the things that you say, I can't do it. No, you can. Or you can grow. You can get to know God's word better. You can be a better evangelist. You can be a person who is self-disciplined. You can be a person who disciples other people. You can do all those things. You might need to be trained on how to do those things, but you can do those things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what some of us have to consider is when we say we can't do those things, is it that we can't? Or is it that we won't? Are you not willing to change your life so that you might do the will of God the Father? When we consider the fact that we are his family, right, and that he wants to empower us to do these things, right, that should be the thing that encourages us. Yes, I want to learn how to die to myself. I want to learn how to say no to the flesh. I want to have accountability in my life that encourages me to pursue God more, even if it's invasive, even if it hurts. I should want that. I should want that. So let us, therefore, strive to do our best together through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to love Jesus more and seek to obey all of his commandments, right? to do all of his commandments. It will be hard to obey at times, okay? I'm not gonna deny that. I know that it's hard. I live life just like you. I know that it's hard when you're tired after a long day of work to want to spend time with Jesus. I know that it's not easy to want to love other people when they're not lovable, when they treat you in a way that rubs you the wrong way or when you're frustrated or, or whatnot. I know it's not easy, but the small steps of obedience, even if it comes at personal cost to us and makes us look uncool, gives us FOMO, it's worth it in the end because God is in the process of making us more like his son. Sometimes we're more focused on getting out of trials than we are understanding what God is intending to do in our lives through the trials. And so if he has a purpose for all those things, as we've seen in, the, in, in Job's life, right, if he has a purpose for all those things, right, let us strive together 
to learn from you from these trials, to embrace the trial rather than to just run away from it and try and get out from under it. Let us learn. Let, let us strive to learn from those things. Let's encourage one another as we go through tough times. Let's be willing to, well, learn to live to die to self and to live for him who saved us. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word and how it solidifies for us who Christ is. And as we think more about the reality of who Christ is, we recognize that it's not enough for us just to intellectually acknowledge who Christ is. But Lord, we must do something with it, with that knowledge. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to think a little more deeply, to consider more of, of what you want us to learn, how you want us to apply your truth to our lives. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us as a result to be um, the people that you saved us to be, that we would grow closer to you as we're striving as hard as we can to grow rather than just sitting back and just kind of hoping that we'll eventually grow. We pray, Father, that you would help us to desire that growth in our lives, that help us all to be humble, to, to be willing to admit fault and, and to see fault. Uh, and, and we pray that, Lord, you would just all help us to grow more and more like Jesus as, our, uh, as, our, as the days go on. We're grateful, Father, for your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.